0: Thank you, friends. Thanks for being here on a Friday night for some uh, discussion of major cultural issues. Uh, that means a lot, and uh, very thankful to be here. I do represent Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, and so it's a delight to be with you here in Jefferson City. This is my first time to... Can I call it Jeff City? Yes. Is that... Okay, see, I'm already, I'm already getting the lingo here. I, I didn't even know... Uh, that's good. To, that's good to hear. Um, so it's great to be here in Jeff City, capital city. Yes, I remember that from fourth grade. Okay, U.S. capitals. And uh, I'm actually from Maine. How many people here know a, you're from Maine? I'm from Maine. Where? The Augusta, area. the Augusta area. My goodness. Well, would you would you guys mind if we just talk for a few? No, I'm just kidding. I'm from I'm from Machias. No kidding. We're by University in Machias. That's right wow, I, that does not usually happen. When I say Maine, <laughs> people go, I don't know anybody from Maine. Um, so, so we will have some conversations to come, because Mainers are, are very proud about their state. We're kind of like Texas in that regard. My wife says, why do Mainers always talk about their state so much? And I say, I don't know, honey, but we do. And you're married to me, so you're going to hear about Maine. So um, I want to begin tonight. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is this. We're going to have the first session, which is just going to be an overview of biblical sexuality and gender. What does the Bible teach about sexuality and gender? These are humongously big topics today, right? Uh, These are the ones that are populating the headlines of the websites and the newspapers you are reading. Changes in bathrooms, Josh mentioned this, uh, transgender laws, non-discrimination ordinances, homosexuality as an identity, right? Is this where you are? Is this what you're hearing about? This is what I'm hearing about, okay. So the Bible has actually much to say about this, though we don't always recognize that. So that's what we're going to do the first session. The second session is actually going to be a zeroing in on those two topics, homosexuality and transgender, okay? So that's where we're going tonight. Tomorrow we'll do uh, manhood and womanhood, and then kind of an overview session. Um, So we'll have that as well tomorrow, and probably another Q&A time, I would imagine, at the end of it. So um, I love questions, so please do pose any questions to me. Uh, you want to at the end of tonight. I want to begin by talking then about biblical sexuality and gender, and we start with Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. You didn't know we were going there, did you? Um, In J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, he, he talks about the power of story to reveal hidden worlds like Lord of the Rings. And here's what he says about fairy stories. In a fairy tale or other world setting... There's a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to reoccur. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure, but the possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. In a fairy tale, uh, there's a universal final defeat that is denied, and so the reader gets a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. That's what Tolkien says. Why do I start here with uh, the author of Lord of the Rings? Many of us have seen the movies and like the movies a lot, love the movies even. I start here because just like a fairy tale gives a glimpse into another world, the Bible gives a glimpse into another world, the true world, the world that God rules. Uh, The way that the fifth century theologian Augustine put it is that you have two basic cities. You have the city of man, which is where all human people dwell, no matter the geography. And then you have the city of God. And the city of God is not a physical place. The city of God is populated by everybody who knows and worships Jesus Christ. The city of God, until Jesus returns, right, lives in the city of man. So we live amidst all sorts of lost people, right? We ourselves know what it is to be lost because before Christ claimed us, and saved us, we were lost. So we have to live as citizens of the true city and citizens of the city that is on fire, the city of man. You see, the city of man, ever since Adam fell in Genesis 3, has been in flames. So I, I say this, friends, because we can think today in 2016 in America, everything is going to seed. What is, what is happening in this country? What, why is everything breaking down around us? Why are the walls crumbling? as we watch them. Well, that's not a wrong thing to think. I'm not here to rebuke you for that thought. I'm just here to tell you, the city of man has always been in the business of falling apart, you see? It's always, one great nation rises up and it falls. Another takes its place and it falls. Another takes its place and it falls. It looks like, presently, America is spiraling downward as a civilization, but this isn't something new. You just have to know this. This is something new in America, but this isn't something new in world history. Sadly, this is what happens to the city of man. It doesn't hold together. It doesn't worship God. It doesn't love God. And so uh, it tends to break down. The good news, though, as Tolkien says, is that there is not final defeat here. We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to return and he is going to remake all things. He's going to rule the new heavens and the new earth. Think of Revelation 21, 22. So we know the end of the story. We know where we're going. We know we're going to live with Jesus in this new heavens and new earth for eternity. What an incredible reality that is. But until then, we have to figure out what it means to be citizens of this city. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you 12 points, 12 points on a Friday night. This is an ambitious talk uh, that trace biblical sexuality and gender. And what we're building here is what is sometimes called a complementarian worldview. Okay, let me explain that. There's two basic ways among evangelicals of looking at the sexes. The first is called complementarity. And it's the view that men and women are made fully equal they're each the image of God. They have full dignity and worth, but they're not the same. They have certain roles that God has given to men and certain roles that God has given to women in the home, in the church, and by extension, in some cases, in society. And so we believe, for example, that men are called to be pastors in the church, elders in the church, and men are called to be head of their home. We'll talk about this as we go. We believe that a woman finds her identity in being a, a in her husband's wife, in submitting to him, and we recognize that, uh, that this is all God's design and for his glory. Egalitarian theology says this. Yes, men and women are distinct, but they share the same roles. They do all the same things. So a man isn't head of his home. Um, he's not the leader of his home. Um, they share that authority, man and woman. And in the church, men can be pastors or elders, but women can be too. There's no distinction between the sexes. So there's been a big debate in evangelical circles for the last 40 years, roughly, over whether the Bible teaches complementarianism, a very long word, or egalitarianism. The perspective you're going to get from me tonight is absolutely complementarian. That's the perspective of our SBC seminary, Southern Baptist seminaries. That's the perspective of many Baptists. That's the perspective of many evangelicals out there, though not all, to be sure. So we're going to build out what we mean by complementarian worldview. In what follows. First point Adam and Eve both bear the image of God, but aren't the same sex. They bear the image of God, but they aren't the same sex, and you see this in Genesis one and two. Then God said, Genesis one twenty six, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see here that God makes mankind, man and woman, in his image. The man is not more the image of God. The woman is not more the image of God. There is glorious equality between the sexes right off the bat. There's unity. And and here in the image of God, there's a tremendous foundation for dignity and for worth and for prizing every human life. What Genesis 1 is telling us in plain terms is this. Some humans are not more human than others. If you are a human being, you are fully a human being. There aren't human beings out there who are 95% a human being. There aren't human beings who are 80% a human being or 60% or 40%. Contra, against, the way our culture commonly thinks. Think about abortion culture today. Abortion culture directly denies what I just said. It argues successfully in terms of millions of babies being aborted uh, over the last... 30, 40 years, that some human beings, maybe they didn't choose this, but their life just isn't as valuable as others, and so they should be killed in the womb. Genesis 1 teaches the exact opposite perspective. It calls us and every reader of the scripture to recognize that every single human being has infinite dignity and worth and potential Humanity is made to be the representation of God on the earth. That language of image refers to kings in the ancient Near East, in Egypt or Israel or places like this, Persia. When kings would travel to another country to visit another king or something or take over another land, they would leave a little image of themselves. And that image represented their rule. So even though they were not there, even though they're far off in Persia, conquering lands, The little statue of the king was supposed to be a sign to everybody who remained that the king still ruled. You see? That's what humanity is. That's you and me. We are the living emblem of God. We represent to one another that there is a God, there is a creator, and and he has made us. And so we are not aliens here. We, We have not created ourselves. We are, again, the image of Almighty God we see how Adam and Eve are made differently in Genesis 2. Adam is made from the dust of the ground. Uh, You see early in Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 8, and Eve is made from a rib of his body. And Eve is identified right off the bat as in the Hebrew, an ezer. This term, uh, this Hebrew term, excuse me, means helper. So right off the bat, The woman is made to be the man's helper. She has a distinct identity. Adam is the one who names her. Uh, All of this is indicating that Adam is the authority in his home. He's the one who God has charged, has called to be a leader in the home. It's not at all signifying that Adam is in any way better than his wife. He's not better, but he is given a leadership role that he recognizes and that his wife initially recognizes. And the two delight in one another. When Adam first sees Eve in Genesis 2.23, he rejoices. He cries out, this at last, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Sometimes you will get a little picture of this at a wedding when you see a couple, a Christian couple in particular, many cases, that has been waiting to be married and are happy about being married, shall we say, and you get, you know, one of these embarrassing kisses or something like this that later, in later years, the wife chastises her husband for. I'm not speaking from personal experience. Uh, this at last is bone of my bone. You get a sense of, of this joy. God-given joy. We laugh, but it's, it's a good joy, right? We weren't made to give out our sexuality, left and right. We weren't made for that. Contra what our culture tells us. We weren't made for all sorts of sexual union before marriage. Sexuality has a purpose and a design right off the bat. It's made for marriage. And it's, it's supposed to be this garden of delight, this fountain of joy. You're supposed to have this in the marital union. That's not a bad thing. That's not something to be ashamed about or embarrassed by. This is the place where embarrassment dies, marriage. Uh, these are holy realities. So, all of this shows us that Adam and Eve are both image bearers, but they're not the same. They're not exactly the same. They're not the same sex. They're not the same gender. They're distinct. They're, they're created differently. One's made from the dust. The other's made from a rib. God is telling you and me something here. Listen to me. This is, this is hot topic stuff right now. People are telling us, I'm going to say more in the next session. People are saying, I'm not one sex. I'm not one gender. I was born with these body parts, but I'm a different sex or gender. This is where your kids are if they're in public school. This is certainly what they're headed for. This is what's being taught in college campuses, college classrooms. This is, this is coming for our kids, for our grandkids. Uh, it's already here. It's already on the ground. So we need to be equipped. We need to know from the biblical text that God has a design for manhood and a design for womanhood, and he doesn't make you by accident. He doesn't make you by accident. He makes you just the way you're supposed to be. I'm not up here to hear the sound of my voice, just so you know. I am up here, hopefully, such that whatever I say that is true from the Bible, you can take, and you can take to your family, you can take to your friends, your small group, whatever it may be, and you can take to the workplace and you can be a witness in these things. That's what this is for. This isn't just for us to have a fun time in here on Friday night. Christians need to be mobilized and equipped now. I'm so thankful. Josh asked me to do this, not because of me, but because we need to talk about these things, and we need to be ready. You need to be ready here in this city, in this area, to speak to these matters from a Christ-centered perspective. We can't give this stuff up. This is Holy Scripture. Number two, point two, the fall subverts God's design. The false subverts God's design. Think about what I just said a minute ago. Adam is the one who's supposed to name his wife. Her body exists only because his rib was taken. He has leadership in his home, and yet what happens in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, is that he doesn't lead and protect his wife. His wife leads him, and she is led by the serpent into sin. She eats the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, a a story that is familiar with you. This is a true story. This isn't a fable, a myth, or a legend. This is a true story. And so Eve eats the forbidden fruit. Adam, it appears, is standing right beside, is saying nothing. He's a passive man. That's a type that's familiar to us. In 2016, he does nothing to protect her. He should, what he should be doing when the serpent is talking and his wife is acquiescing to the serpent's desire is that he should be picking up the biggest rock or the biggest stick he can handle and smashing the serpent. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. He doesn't do that. He allows the serpent to exercise dominion, take dominion of his wife, And then he eats the fruit himself. You see, this is a reversal of how things are supposed to be, right? Even in that passage I read you a minute ago from Genesis 1. Listen again. Let them, so that's both the man and the woman, have dominion over who? The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock over all the earth, and what? What's the last thing named over every creeping thing? that creeps on the earth. What creeps on the earth? Serpent, serpent dead right. See, see God, was, God was speaking very directly to Adam and Eve, wasn't he? He was telling them, do not be taken in by anything, especially by a creeping thing. But Satan took the form of a serpent and mastered the man and the woman. It's a reversal of the way things were supposed to go. The man and the woman are supposed to take dominion of the serpent. The serpent takes dominion of the man and the woman, and then it spirals from there. So what happens is this. The created order is subverted, and then this all ends up with Adam blaming God. In Genesis 3.12, the woman you gave me, she gave me fruit to eat. In the Hebrew, uh, it's front-loaded, the woman you gave me, in Adam's response to the Lord. In other words, Adam is blaming God for all of this, when Adam is the one who is to blame. He's the one who most has responsibility for what has taken place, and what does he do? Like a little boy, he blame shifts. He doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't own it, even after it's, it's uh, terribly apparent that he has fallen. Okay, so what follows from this, point three? After the fall, Adam and Eve are cursed in different ways. This is very interesting. We act as if a lot of times when we talk about sin in the church, I'm talking about good churches that talk about sin. Uh, We will talk about sin as affecting everybody, as making us fallen, as necessitating God's judgment for eternity in hell. We'll talk about things like this, and we must talk about things like this. But here's the really fascinating thing. The man and the woman get different curses. They're both cursed. They both die. So I'm not saying that is any modification. I am saying Eve's childbearing, Genesis 3.16, is cursed. She is now going to bear children in pain. I have three children, eight, five, and two. I watched this woman um, bear children three times. It, it was incredible. She did the last two without, um, what's it called, without an injection. What is it? Epidural. Thank you. She did the last two without an epidural. I was like, are you sure you're going to do? I almost passed out. I was in deeper pain than she was uh, for her, watching her do this. Anyway, you see the effects of this. Childbearing is cursed. Why? Why is childbearing cursed, brothers and sisters? Why is childbearing cursed? What's the big deal? Childbearing is cursed because it's the the area of life especially given to the woman for God's glory. This is the unique capacity of the woman. The Man can't do this, right? The woman can do this, and, and this, this role of childbearing signifies all the woman's work, all her work to raise and love and bless her family, to bear children, all of it's cursed. Her role is cursed to the full. What about the man? Genesis three seventeen through 19, Adam's work is cursed. It's now, by the sweat of his brow, that he's going to work the ground and he's going to have to fight thorns and thistles to bear fruit from the earth. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. The days are going to be long. He's going to need Tylenol. His joints are going to ache, right? Work is now going to be hard. What's, What's being signified? His sphere of work is cursed. You see, here's the fascinating thing. Even in the curse, you see that God has a different plan for men or women, men and women. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand this. We're not saying that women become a childbearer after the curse, in the curse. That's not true. Women were always going to be the one who were going to bear children, right? God made their body that way. And we're not saying that Adam becomes a worker because God curses him. No, Adam was always going to be a worker. That was given to him. In Genesis 2, you can see that. But now his sphere is cursed. So what God is saying to us is that men and women, even after the fall, have a given sphere where they especially labor, Women especially laboring in terms of the family and the home. Men especially laboring in terms of work and provision. They have to fight. They have to fight the effects of the fall in both spheres. But take note, these are still spheres in which they should work. Despite the fall, God takes the skins of animals and he clothes Adam and Eve in them, Genesis 3.21. That is a powerful picture. What a God this is despite the fact that Adam and Eve have sinned against Almighty God, they have directly disobeyed him. God clothes them. They realize that they're naked. They feel deep, deep shame. And God does not leave them that way. That's a little, that's a little foretaste of salvation. That's a little foretaste of what God does for you and for me in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes, he dies on the cross And everyone who believes in him, according to Romans 4 and 5, is clothed in his righteousness. So we don't earn our way to heaven, right? Just like Adam and Eve don't make themselves pure. They can do nothing to make themselves pure, excuse me. God is the one who makes them pure. God is the one who washes them clean and gives them clean garments, just like he does for you and me, just like he does for every sinner who repents of their sin and calls on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. What a God this is. What a kind God he is. Fourth point, Adam and Eve become parents in Genesis 4. See, we're already at point four. See, you've already done one third of the points. You get a gold star so far. Okay. Adam and Eve become parents in Genesis 4. Despite what has just happened, despite the awful nature of these circumstances, God gives the blessing of children. And what a blessing children are. The Bible does not picture children as a curse. The Bible doesn't picture children as a curse. Secular American culture likes to think of children as a curse. You may not have, I don't know, five to eight children. I don't. I don't have that number. But I have friends who do. Even four. Even four children. And when they're asked, you know, out in public how many kids they have, and they give the number, they will regularly be met with shock, awe, and some degree of loathing, as if they done something wrong. You know, the common response is, you know what's causing that, that sort of thing, right? They do know what's causing it, but they believe that children are not a curse. Children are a blessing. This is what we believe in the church. It's a blessing that God gives kids, even after the fall. Listen, Adam and Eve should lose the ability to have kids. They should have every good gift taken away from them after the fall. But that's not what God does. In his common grace to all people, all mankind, God allows them to have kids. Listen, we all struggle as parents to love our children as we should. We have times, we have moments, if we're honest, when we are not necessarily feeling to the fullest extent of our being, that our children are at this moment blessing us to the full. Is this not true? We've, we've had this. Maybe you had it once. I had it once. No. We have to fight this, don't we? Because we're sinners following, at, following Genesis 3, Adam's fall. We are sinners. Adam gave us a sin nature. We don't. Here's the funny thing. Even as we are sinning, we're not training our kids to sin, right? They do it naturally. They do it naturally. The one-year-old in my family, last year, I wasn't calling her forward and saying, Ainsley, Ainsley Kate, come here. When your mother says to come, you run the opposite way, as fast as you can. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and again, and again. No, she does it naturally. She does it naturally. It's this, it's this horrible miracle that she learns it without any training. We don't train our kids. There's no classes for toddlers on lying mechanisms, Right? They just do them. They, it's natural. So here's the thing. We, our race is under a curse. Children are born with a sin nature, and yet the Scripture pictures them as a profound blessing. You think of texts like Psalm 127 and Psalm 139. It's, it's a sign of God's profound kindness and favor that we would be able to to have a family, to have children born, to raise them. God loves life. Satan hates life, but God loves it. God is not behind abortion culture. You know who's behind abortion culture? Satan, directly. That's Satan's scheme. That's Satan's design. That's his plan. He wants to destroy every last baby he can, and he's doing quite well in America by the way. We pride ourselves on being a first world country. We have these great universities, right? There are several in this state where students are taught that destroying children is a virtue. That's a sign kind of of being a progressive person, a person who loves justice. The opposite is the truth. God loves life. Our God loves life. So as a church, friends, as a church, we need, to, we need to practically demonstrate this. In your neighborhood, when you're talking with the guy next door, and you're a dad, and you have kids, and you love those kids, and, you know, he's griping about the realities of raising kids, as, again, is natural to all of us, you know, you can sympathize with him, but you need to make clear that children are a blessing. You can connect with him. You know, you know what it is to get up in the middle of the night and try and help your wife, you know, hold the baby, give the baby the bottle or whatever it is, you know, feed the baby some, some baby food. You know, Donald Trump told us several months ago that he'd never changed a diaper. I thought, man, that's a different reality than mine. Uh, I guess I'm never going to be a presidential candidate if that's required because um, I've changed a few. It's an honorable thing. It's an honorable thing. To change a diaper. That's not a terrible thing. It's part of loving your wife. It's part of loving your kids. Your wife can't change every diaper. My wife stays at home with the kids. She loves those kids. She pours into them, but I help. I help my wife. That's manly. That's manliness. Manhood is not most demonstrated in dunking a basketball or catching a touchdown over two outstretched defenders. Manhood is most demonstrated, I think, in Godliness. Manhood is on evident display when a dad loves his kids, when a dad walks down the street with his little girl's hand in his, when a dad changes a diaper so his wife can keep sleeping. That's manhood. That's manhood, not a Dodge Ram truck that goes really fast and makes the loudest noise. That's great. That's great. <laughs> if, if you have one you're looking to give away, I'll take it. But that, listen... That with a deer in the back, this is Maine. This is Maine culture now. Maybe it overlaps with Missouri culture. That's not most manhood. That's not bad. I don't think hunting's bad. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. That same hunter, when he goes home, if he loves his wife, if he turns away from pornography, if he takes the kids to church, that's manhood. That's the heart. That's the center. The other stuff isn't bad. It's good. We want our boys to be manly in traditional ways wherever we can. I, I'm for that. But the center of manhood is godliness. It's godliness. And the center of godliness is self-sacrifice. You're never more a man than when you're sacrificing your own interests for the good of your wife and the good of your kids. And by the way, that's what parenting is. It, it is so tragic to me to think of what many kids are going to get in coming days in secular homes non-Christian homes because a lot of younger people a lot of my generation and younger think that life is about getting basically what you want getting to do what you want to do and they think they can fit kids in there and have a lot of fun with the kids and the kids will hopefully be cute and these sorts of things it'll be kind of fun it's kind of like an accessory that's living here's the deal Parenthood equals self-sacrifice. It's not that, you see what I mean? It's not that there is sacrifice in parenting here and there. It's that the core of parenting is death to self. The core of it. The core of it. Listen, I I am tempted to complain like anybody else when I have to sacrifice this or that when it's yet again another tough night of sleep for the little kids when there's duties placed on me that I didn't know were coming. When I'm, when I'm wiped out, I work hard. I come home and, and instead of, you know, putting my feet up for several hours and the kids just sort of vanishing, you know, I got to plug in. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. But here's the deal. That's what I signed up for. It's what every parent signs up for. That's a little life that's dependent on you. God gave you that life. God gave you that life, if you're a Christian, to draw you closer to Christ, to show you what it means to be God the Father in a little picture. And being God the Father, think of that. It meant self-sacrifice even for God. He gave up his son, right? He gave up his son for us so that we would be saved. So what does that tell you about your fatherhood or, by extension, motherhood? It tells you the banner over your parenting is death to self I don't get what I want all the time, a lot of the time. I put the interests of my spouse ahead of me, 1 Corinthians 7. I definitely do everything I can to love these children if God gives us children. Death to self. Write it, man. Write it. Tattoo it on your knuckles if you need to. We Many, many of us do because our flesh pulls against us. You see, even though God gives children as a blessing. Children have not escaped the effects of the fall. What happens in Genesis 4? Who is slain? Abel, right? Cain and Abel go out to a field, and what does Cain do? He's jealous of his brother's sacrifice. Abel offers a better sacrifice. God is pleased with him, and instead of repenting, And being a godly man about it and learning his lesson, what does Cain do? He's jealous, and so he kills him. He kills him in cold blood, kills his brother. Satan, to this point, just in four chapters of the Bible, there's many, many more to come, has devastated the family. He has attacked the family with multiple waves. He has now induced one member of the family to, to kill another member. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Satan is still attacking the family. He always has been, though. This isn't new. This didn't start with the sexual revolution. Please hear me. It didn't. It didn't start in 1964, 5, 6, whatever it is. It didn't start with flower power. It didn't start with Woodstock. It didn't start with the hippies, okay? We can all lament bell-bottom jeans, but it didn't start there. It started back in Genesis 3, And the tragic effects of the fall on the family are seen immediately, and they're still unfolding. They're still playing out over and over and over again. Listen, if you have a family, if you're a member of a family, Satan wants that family to fall. He does. He wants you to fall. If you're a husband, Satan wants you to crash and burn. If you're a wife, Satan wants you to be destroyed. If you have kids, Satan wants to destroy them. I don't say this to be, you know, creepy and weird and eerie. I say it because this is what the Bible tells us straight up. And there's nothing fancy about it. We have to fight this with every force of our being. This requires godly parents who seek the Lord and by the power of Jesus Christ in us, overcome. That's what we need. But too many families don't have this mentality. Too many families want a generally happy family. Things are good. You know, the kids aren't falling off the rails or anything. They're not in the front headlines of the paper or something. So everything's fine. We have to recognize as Christians, Satan wants every family to fall. This requires vigilance on our part, Christ-powered vigilance. If you see, as I do, that you don't hit your marks here at 100%, don't. Drop out. Don't tune out. Don't get discouraged. Get together as a husband-and-wife couple and, and pray and say, "It's a new day in this home. We are pursuing the Lord with vigilance. Satan is not going to get this family. He's not going to. We will overcome by the blood of the lamb. These children God has given us will not, insofar as we can, we can help here, will not be drawn off by the devil we are going to, Lord willing, raise them to know and trust and reverence and worship Jesus Christ. If that's never happened, if there's never been such a conversation in your house or in your marriage, there can be one tonight. There can be one tomorrow. And it can be a new day. The sun can dawn in your home. And it can be a new day. If you've raised your kids, it can be a new day for those you raised You you can talk with them. You can help them. You can encourage them. If you've raised your kids, you have grandkids, and you see young couples in these pews or in the the town, in the city, beyond, you can help them. (laughs) Nobody said you have to be on the sidelines. Nobody said you're done. You can help. You can give your wisdom and pass it down and mentor a couple. By the way, most young couples need some kind of mentoring. Most of us are hacking through the forest, right? Together we're trying to do it. We, we don't have it all figured out. Don't think we do. Remember how you were when you were young. So God uses all of his children in his kingdom. This is a kingdom of priests. This isn't a situation where only the pastor does the work. This is a, this is a church where the spirit indwells every person and equips every person to minister grace to one another. What, what a God this is. What a kingdom this is. Number five, in ancient Israel, men are called to protect women and children. We think of uh, many places, honestly. We think of David's mighty men in First Chronicles 11, 2 Samuel 23. You don't hear many sermons about David's mighty men. Men need more sermons preached about the warriors of the Old Testament. There's too, too few of those. We need more. Pastors need to preach more two men, about godly, virtuous manhood. You think of other texts as well. Judges 4, 8 through 9. This is the instance you're familiar with, some of you, where uh, no men in Israel are really stepping up to lead. And so Deborah is slated to lead Israel in battle against the enemies of God. And this weak man, uh, Barak, is talking with Deborah and shows that he is weak. Barak said to her, verse, uh, Judges 4, verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. What? What a woman is saying here, Deborah, is not that women are inferior to men. Is not that men are better than women. She is recognizing that it is in the nature of a man to step up and sacrifice himself and lead when there is a threat. And what is taking place in this passage? This man, Barak, is refusing to do that. He is fearful, he's afraid, and he's effectively saying to a woman, no, you need to lead. I can't lead. And, and this woman, who is no feminist, by the way, she's a woman of God. This woman shames him. She shames him directly. This will not lead to your glory. There will not be songs sung about you, Barack, for generations, because you're a weak man. And the Lord is going to sell Sisera into my hand. And I'm going to do it, because I'm a woman of God, effectively is what she's saying but this is not to your glory. This is, wow, this is profound for us to think about because this is telling us something about the nature of manhood. This is telling us that men are those who are called to step up and protect women and children. It's embedded in the Bible. This is a virtue that has been basically lost in Western culture and society. Um, President Barack Obama has very much pushed uh, for the total integration, including combat forces of the American Armed Forces. And that will happen very soon. There are a few people in society left who will protest that. But even in the, even in the last Republican uh, presidential nomination run-up, multiple candidates, including solid candidates who would agree with a lot of what we think about manhood and womanhood, a lot of what the Bible teaches, not necessarily all of it, but a lot of it, multiple candidates called for women, girls, to be drafted. A, A total rejection of this kind of perspective. America has not stood for this historically. Historically in America, nobody thought men were better than women in terms of military work, but men thought that they were called to lay their lives on the line for women, for women and children as well. That's what they thought. That's just what, you, that's what is in your blood. That's what you were trained to believe from birth as a boy. When there's a threat on you know, the playground, the boys step up. The boys respond. It's not because the girls can't, but the boys are the ones who are called to sacrifice themselves. Leadership doesn't mean you get it the best. You get the good stuff and nobody else does. Leadership... In the Bible, and filtered down throughout biblical influence in American culture, leadership means you put yourself on the line. Leadership doesn't mean you will get served in the home like a king, you know, your wife waiting on your every whim. Leadership means you put yourself on the line. But this has all changed. Some of us on Twitter and stuff like that uh, spoke up against this. I wrote a very short blog piece about um, Rubio and Bush saying that uh, women, girls, (laughs) could be drafted. And uh, it was one of the biggest, got one of the strongest responses any piece I've ever written has gotten. Over 4,000 likes on Facebook. I don't usually get that. I usually get, like, my mom and my cousins liking it. So let that be noted. But this one, this one went. It was like four paragraphs, honestly. It was no work of great literature. It was just short and to the point, saying what I'm saying here, and it exploded. It showed me that even though we have been indoctrinated to believe that men and women are exactly the same, that it's chauvinist for a man to step up, it's wrong for a man to do that, that's actually not what a lot of people believe. A lot of people actually believe that a man should put himself on the line for women and children. A lot of people still believe that. They've been cowed by the culture. Been, they get dinged if they say that in public, get their knuckles wrapped or something like this, but a lot of people believe that. And that's what they should believe. Men should put themselves on the line for women and children. That's, that's essential. That's rooted in the nature of manhood. That's part of what it means to be a man. If there's something in the night that's a disturbance, the husband and wife don't sort out who's going to go down. It's, it's the husband. It's the husband going down. Full stop. He goes down. He gets out of bed. He disturbs his sleep. No question. No questions asked. No questions asked. Now, by contrast, men treating women badly create some of the worst or horrific moments in biblical history you think of Tamar in Genesis 38 and the the Levite's concubine in Judges 19 both of these women are ravaged by men and treated horribly and so the bible the bible not always by direct commandment but the bible sometimes by pictures by stories true stories is telling us something about how men treat women men reverence women <laughs> It's not that the Christian worldview puts women in a box and keeps them down. It's that the Christian worldview esteems women and loves them and seeks their best. But but seeking their best doesn't mean treating boys and girls just the same. I was at the Y yesterday in uh, in Kansas City, the Y where I go, just shooting around, playing basketball. I love basketball. Uh, I shouldn't love basketball based off of a calculation of size and weight, but I do love basketball. I should love shuffleboard Um, or what, what should I love? Ping pong. I don't know. Um, Badminton. I should be an expert badminton player, but I'm not. I digress. I'm, I'm just shooting around. You know, it's been a long work week. We had a really busy uh, week at Midwestern, huge conference called for the church. It was awesome. Um, God really blessed it. God is really blessing Midwestern right now in Kansas City. It's awesome to be a tiny part of it anyway, so I'm, I'm wiped. When I'm wiped, I need to shoot around. And there's his dad on the other end, and he's got his, he's got his boy and his girl. And uh, he's he's often there, this dad. He's a, he's a good coach to these kids. He's going to have good basketball players, I can tell you that. But he is just lighting into this girl. And at one point, she drops to the ground and starts weeping. And then a few minutes later says, I hate you. Now, both boys and girls can hit their points you know, when they're being trained where you know, they're giving themselves excuses and this sort of thing. I'm not saying that never happens. But in this case, you could tell this girl needed a gentle touch from her dad. She didn't need to be treated like the boy. The boy sometimes does need a barking order. She needed to be treated gently, and she wasn't getting that. And it was such a picture to me of 21st century America where boys and girls are treated just the same. And they shouldn't be. They're not the same. They're not made the same. Men and women are created distinctly for God's glory. It doesn't mean that every woman is a shrinking flower. We just talked about childbirth, right? Women are tough. My goodness, the things that women can do and pull off in a given day, they are tough, they are gifted, they are skilled. Sometimes I think they out-tough men. But here's the thing, that doesn't mean they're the same as men and they should be treated the same as men. They shouldn't. And the Bible shows us that in numerous places. Number six, Song of Songs depicts a husband and wife who pursue love of one another. They pursue love of one another in Song of Songs. I'm not going to say much about Song of Songs. It's like the preacher's nightmare of a text. How do you interpret it? What do you say in public? These and other questions. I will say this. Song of Songs shows us that Christians need not be squeamish about marriage and about sex. We know that sex is made for marriage. Sex wasn't created by Playboy. Sex wasn't created by pornographers. Sex was created by God. He made it. He designed it. He honestly, he honestly made it for His glory. So we're not shy. Honestly, we're not shy about that. We're not squeamish about that. The world treats us weirdly for believing in marriage and believing in the family and believing in a, a loving union of a husband and wife, we recognize that we're not the weird ones. It's weird to have a different view of sex. Now, of course, outside of the gospel of grace, we're all weird. And even sometimes when the gospel of grace claims us, we're still weird. We need to note that in this book, Song of Songs, the husband and wife work together together. To pursue a loving sexual union, it's clearly not easy. He keeps coming. I'm, I'm going to put this real directly. He keeps coming to her bedroom. He is very interested in his wife. I'm going to speak colloquial. I'm not going to speak super directly here, but I will say this this way. He is very interested in her, and she is not as interested in him. She has been working in the field, and she does. <laughs> I got an amen. Okay. Uh, she she is uh, she she wants to go to sleep, and and he is interested in her. But then she comes to him and, and he's kind of ticked and it's it's funny because Song of Songs can seem like this oh this flowery marriage text. Song of Songs is about a real marriage. It's depicting the dynamics of marriage. You don't need to amen, but I know you know what I'm talking about. We, we sometimes treat sex in these idealistic categories as Christians, as if every Christian marriage is just having, you know, the best possible sex life or whatever you want to call it, and that's not necessarily true. Why? Because we're in a fallen world and it affects everything, and it can be hard, and this couple shows us. Read, read this book again as a couple. You'd be surprised at how practical it is. You'd be surprised at how relevant it is. It's like 20, 2,800 years ago in ancient Israel, and it Speaks to marriage dynamics now. Marriage is very hard work. Good marriages with good romantic lives are, it's hard work. It's way less about what Hollywood says it is. It is way less about just, you know, opening the door and falling into one another's arms and it's seamless and perfect. There are all kinds of things we struggle with. We struggle with all sorts of dimensions uh, of, of sexual experience in marriage. And by the way, here, here we are again. Young couples need help with some of these things. Women need to talk to women. Men need to talk to men, because marriage is hard work, and a God-glorifying romantic life is not easy. And we can be very privatized in the church and just assume that everybody's doing perfect. Everybody's hitting tens of tens in all facets of marriage. It's not true. People need help. There can be there can be difficulties for years—physical, emotional, schedule difficult—all. S- sorts of things. And that's not weird, actually. That's part of what happens in a sinful world. The couple, you know, when they're saying their vows and it's lovely, she looks lovely in her white dress. He looks handsome. He's broad-shouldered, at least for a day in his tuxedo. They, they look so happy and it looks like it's fairy tale. Everybody takes the pictures, you know, and it's a great day. And, you, you know, you get the frames and you remember it. But in reality, that couple is launching out into a sojourn through the wilderness together. And it's going to be hard work. It's going to be very hard work. We idealize the wedding ceremony. We spend $30,000, $50,000 on wedding ceremonies. But we don't necessarily spend time on the marriage. The marriage is gonna be hard work. It's not, if your marriage requires hard work, something's not going wrong with you, okay? It's not just you, it's a fallen world. So there's so much to say here. I'll close with this on this point. You, You need to have good communication as a pastoral team with the people. You need to help them work through these things. You need to preach about these things. Couples need counseling. Couples need help. It's good to reach out to other couples and ask for help. Don't be proud. Don't assume that you're the only one struggling. This is a much bigger reality than we often make it. Number seven, Jesus in the New Testament upholds what we call complementarity in Matthew 19. Jesus upholds complementarity. The sexes being complementary, created for unity, but different to God's glory. Matthew 19 verse 3, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, he's quoting. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we see that contra what we sometimes hear about Jesus and homosexuality or Jesus and transgender, Jesus actually very much does speak to God's design for sexuality and gender. He speaks to it. What do I mean? He reaffirms what Genesis says, that God made them, the man and the woman, male and female. What's Jesus upholding? He's upholding what we could call binary sex, binary gender. There's a man and there's a woman. There's not something confusing in between in Jesus's mind. Like what we hear today, there's a man and a woman. There's male and female. And God's plan is not for men and women to get together and have any form of a marriage, you know, 11 people marrying one another with all sorts of different arrangements. No, there's one plan, right? It's a man and a woman in union for life. That's God's plan. Jesus will allow for divorce if there is adultery, um, so so that is a category if there's abandonment the church has typically assumed that there can be many Christians would say there can be grounds for divorce and if there is real sin being committed in the marriage along those lines and that happens we we do not cheer divorce but we recognize that it in tragic cases it may be necessary it may be necessary and the party who who ends up divorcing the abusive wicked, unrepentant party, if it fits biblical guidelines, not just for any reason, but biblical guidelines, that party should not have some kind of weight on their shoulders the rest of their life. The church is not heaping shame on them, at least I hope we're not. If they have been sinned against, they've been sinned against. They should not be viewed as suspect. But with that said, what's the design of God for marriage? What's the hope of Jesus. If Jesus has a hope for marriage, take it seriously, right? Take that seriously. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, I've said the caveat about if there's adultery or abuse, uh, divorce may, may happen and, and we don't cause shame for the party who has been sinned against. We, we welcome them. But outside of that, against what American culture now stands for. We do not support what is called no-fault divorce. We do not support marriages crumbling into thin air. We do not support people raising the kids and then breaking apart for no real good reason. We do not believe that we drift out of love with one another is what I'm trying to say to you. We don't believe that. It doesn't happen. We don't believe in, you know, a, a couple being together for many years and, liking one another and, you know, continuing in marriage. And then eh, one of them gets tired of it and just decides to break it off. The world does. The world loves that. The world thinks that's going to bring happiness. It's not going to bring happiness. It's going to bring devastation. It's going to rip up. Listen, every little marriage, every marriage is a little universe unto itself. Every family, every family is a little world unto itself with its own working its own habits its own inside jokes its own rituals its own traditions its own language right every family is its own little beautiful world when 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 you divorce when you let man separate for unbiblical reasons it explodes that world it destroys it it rips it in half who is the most affected by the way when that happens it's not husband and wife. That's exactly right. It's children. It's children who are the most hurt when you go through a divorce. Hollywood now presents divorces as if it's a virtuous thing. It's this wonderful thing, and the the two parents, you know, share the carpooling and whatever, and it's better than it ever was. No, no, those that that child's worldview is just ripped in half. They thought their parents. Had a secure foundation and their parents loved one another, and their whole worldview was anchored in that love between husband and wife. The one thing they could trust in human terms, besides God, in divine terms, was that dad loved mom. Mom loved dad. And they rested <sighs> way more than you and I know, parents, way more than we know. Our kids rest their hopes and their confidence on that marriage. See, marriage seems like this normal thing. Every, you know, just marriage, just go through the motions. Marriage is fragile. It's fragile. It can break apart like nothing. The human heart loves no-fault divorce because it gets what it wants. Our sinful hearts want marriage to crumble because then we can do what we want, which we think will make us happy. In truth, it will bring misery. When we divorce for unbiblical reasons... It will bring misery. Jesus' design is God the Father's design for marriage, and it is this. When God joins you together, don't separate. Sometimes you hear married people talk about their type, my type. That's very psychological, modern language. What's my type? Here's your type, husband, your wife. Here's your type, wife, your husband. That's your type. That's your type. It's not, you know... You know this vision of womanhood that you saw in a movie somewhere, that's in an image in some magazine or on some website. That's not your type. Your type is what the woman next to you looks like, and it's the same for a woman. That's your type. That's what you want in a man. If you're a woman, if you're a man, that's what you want in a woman. God was so kind to you to give you a spouse. How, how dare you indicate? that someone other than what God joined together with you is your type. Your type is your spouse. Don't buy what the culture says. It's not going to make you happy to destroy your home, destroy your kid's worldview. It's going to plunge you and her and them into chaos and pain. Don't believe the world. Number eight. We gotta, wow, we've got to move fast here. The persons of the Godhead carry out different roles. You see this most closely in 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What this passage in 1 Corinthians 11.3 is teaching us is that there is an authority, submission, structure built into the Trinity. Wow! The head of Christ is God. This means that God the Father acts as authority and sends his Son into the world, just what Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says. And the Son submits to his Father, John 5, 38, and does his Father's will. So we need to recognize that just as a husband is called to be authority and a wife is called to submit, so the Father and the Son have this dynamic. This means then that submission is not a derogatory calling. Submission is a calling that Jesus has to submit to his father. Sometimes the only time that submission is mentioned in Christian circles and churches is in a joke in the wedding ceremony. And every pastor who does that deserves a lightning bolt on the spot right there that robs him of all his hair or something like this. Because submission is not a joke. Submission is a way to honor the Lord. Submission honors the Lord when it is done in a marriage context. Submission does not mean that a husband domineeringly rules his wife. It does not mean that a wife has no opinions. It does not mean that a husband has authority to treat her poorly. Our next point is this. In Ephesians 5, we see what a husband and wife must be. This is the next point, point nine. In Ephesians 5, we see what a husband and wife must be. I'll go quickly. I won't read scripture at this point in the interest of time. But in Ephesians 5.25, we hear this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for his bride. So as authority in his home, this does not mean that he gets whatever he wants. This isn't a blank check for selfishness on the part of the husband. It's the exact opposite. Being the leader of his home means he's supposed to put his family, his wife especially, first. And the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This relationship, uh, leadership and submission, headship and submission, is, is the overturning of the curse in marital form of Genesis 3. When this happens, we are showing the world that the curse does not win. When husbands graciously, wisely, humbly lead their families, but courageously lead them, God is honored. When wives submit to their husbands and support them and respect them and, and look to them to make the leadership decisions, not meaning no input from the wife, but they look to the husband to lead the family, in a real way, God is honored, and Satan has to run away in shame. His schemes did not work. Number 10, men and women play different roles in the church. Men and women play different roles in the church. You see this in numerous places, especially in First Timothy 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is what we talked about earlier with Genesis 1 and 2. The man is created for leadership both in the home and in the church. So this means that egalitarians are not right when they say either a man or a woman can preach and teach. Men are called to preach and teach in the church and men are called to be the ones who are elders in the church. Men are the ones who are called to shepherd and pastor the church. This isn't up to us to redefine God didn't make it this way to put women behind the eight ball. This is his leadership structure that glorifies him. This is how he has it. And this is the way we must have it as well. Number 11. Almost there, guys. Men and women play different roles in the home. You see this, for example, in Titus 2. Uh, Older women, we learn, are to train the young women... Verse 5 to be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. This means that it's not merely cultural in American history that women would raise kids and men would provide. That's a biblical design. We're not saying that women can never contribute economically to the home. Um, Many Christians have a category for that of some kind, but we are saying that a woman's primary activity when she has children is to be a worker at home, to, to raise her children and uh, to, to make her home, to manage her home. Listen, it's not, it's not a bad thing that a woman would be called to that. It's actually a glorious thing when a woman is freed up to love her children. Somebody else doesn't have to raise her children. They, they don't have to be put in a daycare. It's a wonderful thing when our kids get the full attention of their mother. That's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. And it's not a bad thing when a man works very hard to provide for his family. That's a good thing. Seven million men apparently have dropped out of the workforce in the last few years in America. Many men have been told by a feminist culture that they they don't need to work, they don't need to provide, they shouldn't be leaders. They should step back. Women, in fact, are better equipped to be leaders. They're more collaborative. They're they're more emotionally intuitive, excuse me. Men don't need to be leaders. That's a lie. That cuts the heart out of manhood. Manhood is closely connected to working and providing and hard things. Listen, men do best when they have a challenge. Most men, not every man, but most men do best, not when you dumb them down and talk down to them, and act like they're an idiot, like many TV commercials do. Men do best not when you treat them like that, and when you tell them to sit down, when you tell boys that they move around too much in school, and they need to act like girls. That's not when men thrive. When do men thrive? When they have a challenge. When somebody calls them to become something greater than they are. But what are men getting today in American culture? They're hearing they need to sit back, they need to let women lead, they need to not raise their voice. It's bad to be a man, it's bad to smell like a man, it's bad to look like a man. This is what they hear. There's all sorts of cues men are getting today, and it's a lie. Men are created to be a man for God's glory. Now, men need a strong deodorant, it should be said, okay? There are some attributes of manhood many of us can identify that can use some work and even a womanly touch, and so marriage is a beautiful thing for many of us. But but manhood is not deficient by nature. Womanhood is not better than manhood, just like manhood is not better than womanhood. God has created each sex for his glory. And men, men need a challenge. Don't dumb down their lives. Call them to become something greater than they naturally are in Jesus Christ. Challenge them. Don't tell boys how little they can do. Tell boys how great they need to be and then call them to that and give them coaching and encouragement. And you know what? When they fail, don't yell at them. Like the world's worst football coach. Be gracious to them. Boys need love just like girls need love. It's not wrong for a dad to hug his boy. It's not wrong for a dad to tell his boy he loves him. That's godly manhood. So we're very different than the culture in numerous ways. In numerous ways. Last, last point. Thank you so much for giving me your attention. I promise the next session will be shorter. Of necessity for you and for me last sexuality in some and gender is a matter of God's glory all of this is all of this is a matter of God's glory we're not talking about living right to make ourselves more happy we're talking about how to give God more glory that's what we're talking about that's what is on our minds that's what, that's what is painted over our, our home, the glory of God. And by, by living according to the biblical design, by the power of Jesus Christ, by his gospel, by daily calling upon God to give us strength through Christ to love him as a man or a woman, we give God much glory And we show the world, we show our neighbors, we show our friends and our family members that you will not be truly happy except through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And you will not be who you were made to be as a man or woman except you are a man or a woman for the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these dear people who have given their attention and time on a Friday night to think through biblical sexuality and gender. These are heavy topics. We put a lot on the plate. I pray, Lord, that what is from your word will stick. I pray that you will strengthen weak hands in this room. I pray that you will bless marriages. Every marriage is under attack. Every marriage needs divine grace. I pray that you'll give it to every marriage represented here. I pray that you'll give divine grace to every family represented here. I pray that you'll strengthen this church and enable it to be a shining city on a hill in this city, not because it figures out a new fancy way to be Christian, but because it is faithful to your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Okay, everybody, this session uh, is going to be shorter. And we're going to talk here about transgender and homosexual identity, okay? So the last session was my first uh, in terms of the subject because I wanted to frame everything that was coming after. So we're going to make reference to some of what I have already talked about in the next four sessions, including this one. Uh, There'll be a little overlap, although I don't intend for there to be a lot of overlap. Just so you know, though, that was the framework session so that we get a big-picture understanding of sexuality and gender from the Scripture. And here we dig into these two major cultural matters, transgender and homosexual identity. Now, a lot of you have noticed that in places like California, Maine, my home state, Washington, and other states, children whose gender identity does not match their sex, according to them, may now enter restrooms and changing facilities of the opposite sex in public places. So here is the basic reality, or the basic argument, I should say, behind transgender identity. It is the the idea that your gender identity is not necessarily a fixed reality. Your gender identity may or may not correspond with your anatomy, okay? So, you may perceive that you are a woman, though you have the anatomy of a man. You may perceive that you are a man, though you have the natural anatomy from birth of a woman. This makes the very idea of sex, male or female, an up-for-grabs reality. So, here's what you need to hear. Transgender identity argues that our identity is fundamentally fluid. The most basic part of your humanity, manhood or womanhood, is not fixed. It can totally change. It can ebb and flow. And you have the responsibility, effectively, of figuring out which you are. Forget your anatomy, again, forget your parts. You have the responsibility of figuring out which you are. That's the basic premise of transgender identity. Your anatomy may not match up with your gender identity, okay? So those are the broad lines of what it means to be transgender. Further language that is used with this concept is another term that will be familiar to you now, or many of you, I'm guessing. Transitions. Who has heard this term of transitioning or transitions, okay? A number of you the transition is when you switch from one gender identity to the other okay so the formal term for me as a man becoming a woman is that I would transition to becoming a woman there's not a lot of research on exactly who is embracing transgender identity one study that has been pretty controversial that is called On the Calculation of the Prevalence of Transsexualism, which is a University of Michigan study, has shown that roughly three out of four people who embrace a transgender identity are men, which is of great note to us. That's telling us that this problem, this, this reality is not one that is being experienced by both sexes it's overwhelmingly men for some reason who are embracing transgender identity it's overwhelmingly men who are in their mind becoming a woman that already tells us something about the cultural moment we're in you heard me speak in the last session about how men are struggling today i'm going to talk more about this tomorrow Men are struggling in many respects today. One of the purest signs of their struggles as at a societal level is this. Many of them seem to be thinking that they need to be women. Of course, the most famous person in America who has embraced a transgender identity is the former decathlete Bruce Jenner, who is now known, as you may have heard, due to great public fanfare, as Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner. Bruce Jenner, as I say, was an Olympic athlete, a gold medal athlete. Some of you watched him on TV uh, win his medals, but he now embraces a womanly identity. At a much less famous level, it is now possible, as I said, in numerous states for little boys, if they say that they have the gender identity, there's that term again, the kind of psychological identity of a girl, it's now fully legal for them to go into the restroom with the little girls. It's now fully legal in Chicago, for example, in public places for a little boy who says he's a little girl to go into the locker room with little girls and change. And that means exactly what you would think it would mean. He has full rights and privileges there. He's able to participate. He's able to be present. He's able to look at all the little girls around him. I am not saying this to be salacious because I wish that I was not up here talking about this, right? And I wish that you weren't here sitting, learning about I wish we were talking about something else. <laughs> There's lots of things to talk about. We actually very much need to talk about this, so I'm not really meaning we shouldn't. I'm saying, I don't want to talk about this. I, I don't want to talk about a reality, a society, an America. This is two, two three states away where little boys can go into the little girl's room, and no adult can tell them otherwise. If my little girls, my eight-year-old little girl, beautiful Ella, is, is in you know the locker room at the Y in one of these states where it's legal uh, for transgender individuals to go into the opposite sex bathroom, I can't do anything about the little boy who says he's a girl going in there with Ella, with my Ella. I have no legal recourse there. You, you have no legal recourse in these situations. This is a stunning change, even you could say a transition in American society and culture. This is revolution right down to the very foundation of American society. Now, you have already heard me talk about at length how we are fundamentally members of the city of God. We are funda- what I'm saying is we're fundamentally Christians, right? Much more than you're an American, you're a Christian. America's going to burn. America's going to fade. America's going to crumble. I love it. I love America. I know many of you do too. But it's, it's not going to last. America's not the new Israel. America's not heaven. America, like every earthly kingdom, every earthly country and society, is going to fade at some point or another. We are Christians. Our citizenship right now, not just in the future, our citizenship right now is in heaven. We, we, are, we are those who have entered the city, the true city. We have gone outside the camp, Hebrews 13. We've left the earthly city. We've gone out to Jesus, who's in a place of shame, according to what the world says. And we have identified with Jesus. We've gone out from fellow sinners. And Jesus is the city that we belong to, right? But... We're not yet, (laughs) right? We're not yet in heaven. We're not yet glorified, you and me. Family members, friends, loved ones in your past, they're in heaven right now. I mean, it's an actual reality. They're there, and that's glorious. But we're not there yet. So what are we supposed to do while we're here? We are supposed to love our neighbor. The second greatest commandment, Matthew 22 Verses thirty eight and thirty nine. We are supposed to we are called by Jesus Himself to love our neighbor. Part of loving our neighbor means seeking the good of our neighbor. It doesn't just mean baking them brownies when they move in to our neighborhood. That's a great thing to do. But it also means in the public square, trying to help our neighbor to see that it's not good to embrace lies. It's not good to embrace things like transgender identity. This is is a reality that is not going to bring happiness and joy to people. This is going to bring pain and sorrow. If it's not biblical and it's not obeying Jesus, it's not going to bring happiness. It might feel like it is, but it's not going to make you happy. It's only going to sign you up for God's judgment if you're living a lifestyle that does not honor God the Lord. Okay, so the stakes are high. Even though we are Christians, even though we worship God, even though we're more Christian than we are American, we still care. We still care about our society. We still care about our country. We still care about Jefferson City. We still care about Missouri. We're Missourians, right? We still care about our state. We don't want Missouri to embrace transgender laws. We don't. You and I don't. We don't want soji laws who 's heard of a soji law? Raise your hand anybody heard of this' it 's a sexual orientation gender identity law okay Th- These are the formal term for these laws when you hear about Washington state or California or Maine embracing non discrimination ordinances that all, that allow of the type, of the type that allow you know little boys to enter the little girls room, those are usually pushed through under this title soji sexual orientation gender identity laws and and the term that is used to describe them is that they are non-discrimination ordinances so you and me we're discriminating is what these laws these terrible terrible laws are saying by virtue of believing that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl we're discriminating and we need to be we need to be righted we need to have the law changed so that our discrimination, which is equivalent to racism of the American past, needs to be overcome. Again, these are very high stakes. We need to love our neighbor, brothers and sisters. We need to care about this. We don't just say, though I have said we're more Christians than we are Americans, we don't just say, well, who cares about America? Who cares about Missouri? Who cares about my town? Who cares about my city, my community? We care. We fight sin wherever it can be found, right? That's what a Christian is. Think about it at a very local level. If there is something terrible happening in your neighborhood, if the person next door to you is engaging in some kind of crime ring or sex trafficking, are you justified in saying, well, I'm going to heaven anyway. It doesn't really matter. I'm a Christian. Are you justified in that? If the father next door to you, it's cruel to his children, cruel to them on a regular basis that you can hear. Are you justified in saying, well, it doesn't really concern me. It's too bad. It doesn't concern me. What does it mean that you are called to love your neighbor, brothers and sisters? What does it mean in those instances? These are not hypotheticals. We're in a sin-cursed world We are the people who speak up. We are the people who put our neck on the line when there's sin. We are the people who cannot let evil stand. The church has not always had a good record on this in terms of racism, in terms of civil rights legislation and other things. So we have to be clear about that. We have often failed to be the people we are called to be by scripture. But today, for us, for issues like this, for issues like transgender and homosexual identity, we can't be silent. We have to speak up. We have to love our neighbor. Loving your neighbor means not letting them continue in sin as best you can. And so that means, that means engaging these issues at the public level, at the, at the legal level, laws, these sorts of things. Okay, biblical text on transgender, second section here. We need to move out of this introductory section and talk about what the Bible would say to us about transgender, and then we'll talk about what the Bible would say to us about homosexuality. First, we read in Deuteronomy 22, five. Please go there. This. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 22 5. This is in what's called the Old Covenant of Scripture. So these prohibitions that we're talking about in Deuteronomy, apply to the nation of Israel. This law that I just read, given God to his people, was was a boundary marker that separated Israel from the other nations. A holy God wanted a holy people. A set-apart God wanted a people who showed that they themselves were set apart, The fundamental call of the follower of God is to be holy. It's to be righteous. That's the fundamental marker of a Christian. So what the Lord is saying in this Deuteronomy passage is exactly what we were talking about when we were talking about God creating man and God creating woman. God made Adam and God made Eve. And here in Deuteronomy 22, we learn that he continues to uphold maleness and femaleness. And he wants men to dress and look like men. And he wants women to dress and look like women. That's what this is teaching. It's not very fancy, is it? It's not super hard to understand. But this is part of what life in ancient Israel looked like. You were supposed to be a man. You're supposed to be a woman. There's no blending. There's no middle category. You don't switch. You don't cross-dress. You don't choose your gender identity. If God gave you the body of a man, you were to understand yourself as a man. If God gave you the body of a woman, you were to understand yourself as a woman. Now, there's something else here in this passage, and it's this. The Lord seems to recognize that there are going to be people who for one reason or another are pulled toward the opposite sex in terms of their identity. You see that? But, right? I mean, if he's telling Israel not to do this, what do we infer? Some people want to do this, right? Some people are pulled this way by nature. They, they just, I don't, it doesn't explain it here, does it? There's not some complex psychological background given for why some people want this. But it's part of, apparently, life in a fallen world. Not every sinner experiences this, but some sinners, sinners like you and me, by nature, do. Some girls from a young age are drawn to boyish things. This is true in ancient Israel. It's not just true in 21st century America. Some boys from boyhood are pulled for reasons they can't articulate. They don't know why, towards girlish things. Our culture now in the 21st century says embrace those instincts all the way to taking pills and having gender reassignment surgery, literally having your organs rearranged, recrafted, resculpted to be those of the opposite sex. This surgery is now happening on little kids and it is frightening to think about. It's just devastating as a reality to think about. Okay, but here's the thing. Long before the surgery becomes a possibility like now, people were experiencing these temptations. And the word of God in the old covenant era is crystal clear as to what response followers of God should have when they feel like they are the opposite sex, like they're a boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa. We're to resist those impulses. We're to resist them. Parents are not to allow their children to cross-dress. That's not godly. The Old Testament actually speaks to it. Isn't it amazing that this matter is directly spoken to thousands and thousands of years ago? This, is pro- this text is probably over 3,000 years old. You see how that's actually weirdly encouraging? <laughs> Once you accept the reality of the fall, it's actually weirdly encouraging that this isn't a new problem. Hear, hear, hear me again. The city of man has always been on fire, guys. It's not just America plummeting down the tubes. You're right to feel that America is sliding. I have no disagreement with you there. But I'm telling you, Israel was sliding. That was, that's a people of God. That's the people the Lord literally walked with. He dwelt with in a pillar of cloud and fire. And they're sliding into this. In a weird way, it's encouraging because it shows you we're not facing some new front of sin, some new creation of sin. We're facing temptations as old as the curse now. They're just getting more and more popular. And as I say, that's oddly, not too encouraging, but a little encouraging to know. I think it just puts... I think it just puts our situation in perspective and helps save us from a kind of sky is falling mentality. That's why I raised that. Now, the New Testament is interestingly direct as well on this point. So we don't just have to work generally from the reality of manhood and womanhood and say, no, the Bible doesn't directly say don't cross-dress, but we don't think you should because God made men and God made women for his glory. We actually have texts that say, Men should look like men and women should look like men. We have them, and women should look like women. Wow, I just contradict everything I said. We have them in both the Old and the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 makes the case for just this presentation. Long hair, the Apostle Paul teaches, is a disgrace for men, but the glory... Of a woman, First Corinthians eleven, fourteen through fifteen. That's his exact language. A disgrace for men, but the glory of a woman. I don't think Paul means a woman has to have a certain length hair. I don't think he means it's wrong for a woman, you know, at certain stages in her life to, to cut her hair shorter. He is saying, though, hear, hear this very clearly, okay? He is saying that there is a look of manhood and there is a certain presentation of womanhood. And the Apostle Paul does not want manhood blurred, and he does not want womanhood blurred. His point is that he wants men and women to dress and look differently. So again, I don't, he doesn't give us a certain you know, measurement, take out the ruler, oh, you have now transgressed the hair length. There's something like this. There's, there's not a standard I'm here to offer you. But this is a, this is a new covenant teaching. This is, this is teaching offered by apostles called to ministry, by the blood and in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose blood is the new covenant, right? The old covenant doesn't apply to you and me anymore. You read the Old Testament and it has all sorts of wonderful teachings and the law still tells you morally what God wanted. But the Old Testament, the old covenant does not apply to you. The New Testament, all of it applies to you. This is the covenant that is operative for every Christian. We have a new law. We don't look to the Old Testament for our guidance in how to live on a day-to-day basis. In other words, if you have mixed fabrics in your clothes, you, have, you do not deserve to be stoned, okay? That was a, that was a commandment God gave that was not silly. It, it was given so that Israel would be separate, set apart, remember? Set apart from all other nations. Now, though, God does not have one nation that is his. He has people from every tribe and tongue, of every ethnic background, and it's to his glory. And he wants these people all over the world to image his glory. And part of that glory is dressing and looking like a man or a woman. So it is actually right for you, as parents, for, for me as a father, to raise my son to look like a boy. And he does looks like a boy, doesn't look like a little girl. And it's right for my two little girls, Ella and Ainsley, eight and two, to look like little girls. The culture pushes against this. The culture tells us that's sexist. The culture tells us that's silly. The culture tells us that owes to a bygone era. And we say, we find this mandate given us in the scripture. Now, of course, there's some gray areas that we all come into contact with. There's some tough issues. I'm not wiping those away. I'm not saying every question is as easy to sort out as every other. I am saying here, though, that 1 Corinthians 11 applies. It's not like the old covenant. It does not not fail to apply to us today. It applies to us in Jesus. And so this is teaching we actually need. So uh, I don't see any in here, but the man bun, buddy, you're going to need to reconsider that man bun. You may need to have a deacon of cutting off the man bun. I'm joking, <coughs> kind of. <laughs> we have a few man buns at Midwestern. And just so you know, just so you know, hear me clearly, okay. I'm not some hopped up weirdo. You know, I haven't, I haven't physically gone after the man bun with scissors. I may have imaged it in my mind, but I haven't done it. Okay, so what we are saying here is this. Um, first point from 1 Corinthians 11. Men and women are not the same and should not present themselves physically as if this is so. We're not the same. Listen, this is to God's glory that you be a man or a woman. It's to God's glory. God is actually glorified not just when Billy Graham preaches the gospel, but when you present yourself as a woman if you're a woman, or when you present yourself as a man as a man. You are honoring the design of God. God is glorified in that. 1 Corinthians 11 says so. And number two, when we do this, we display the order of creation. Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 11 that that the man is the head of his wife, and he's called to show that. And his wife, by virtue of having her certain presentation, her hair is, is supposed to image her submission to him. So God actually wants us to image a a marriage that is male and female and he wants men to be Christ-centered self-sacrificial leaders he wants women to submit to their own husbands sometimes we come to a biblical teaching and we think this could not fly more in the face of culture i mean this challenges me i wasn't taught this or uh, you know maybe somebody in my church maybe my pastor believed it but i didn't know it is, is this maybe a little over the top? What we have to know is that whatever the word of God teaches is good. Whatever the word of God teaches is good. We don't find, we don't, we don't, we don't go to scripture and tell God what's good and what's bad. We don't pick and choose from scripture. The old covenant law does not apply to you. You will not incur the wrath of God if you wear mixed fabrics. The new covenant law applies to you, all of it. So in Christ, we want to honor God as men and as women. Do you see what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters? I'm saying transgender identity has no place in the church. There's no sense of it we can affirm, nothing. We can't affirm any tenet of it. We, we have to just recognize, not because we're angry at the culture, but because we love God. We're joyful in God, that there is no part of rebelling against your body Your God-given body that is going to bless you. Now, children, for reasons you and they can't explain, may, as I said earlier, feel pulled toward the identity of the opposite sex. That takes place. That happens even in Christian homes. Sometimes parents feel like they have failed if that happens. Christian parents, I mean. We need to make very clear that that's just part of living in a fallen world. Somebody who experiences what's called gender dysphoria is not a worse sinner than you or me if we are inclined to little white lies, right? Somebody who is inclined to be kind of grumpy and nasty is just as wicked a sinner as somebody who is inclined to gender dysphoria. But we need to note this as well. Gender dysphoria does not honor the Lord God. Even if a person is not aware of it, it is sinful. It's sinful to embrace the identity of the opposite sex. It's sinful to cross-dress. That's not something... We want to encourage. Now, I get that at, you know, summer camp, on the last day when all the kids are going crazy, maybe there's some goofy skits or something that happens. We've all seen these at Christian youth camps. That's a joke. That's a joke, you know. There, there can occasionally be flouting of gender categories that, you know, I think is maybe good-natured. But we're talking, about, we're talking about a genuine embrace of the opposite sex, right? And we're saying that's a no-go. That's a non-starter. That's a null set for Christians. The Bible does not allow for this. When I referenced Jesus earlier as saying that God made them male and female, that's Jesus himself weighing in. He wasn't weighing in on this specific issue. He's weighing in on divorce. But he was making very clear that God the Father made manhood and womanhood. So Jesus himself, somebody says to you, Jesus didn't talk about this. There's no verse in the Bible where Jesus says, you can't be, thou shalt not be transgender. You say to them, Jesus spoke to this issue. He, he was talking about divorce, but he, he clearly affirms that there is biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. So we can't shrink back from that. Okay, now let's talk about homosexuality. We're going fast. As I, I, I promised you, this session would not be as long, and it won't be. The major cultural issue of our day in terms of what is driving the news is homosexuality. You would think, based on media coverage, that one out of every three people identifies as gay or lesbian. In reality, the percentage is hard to pin down, but it's something like 2 to 4%. It's not 33%, it's not 30%, it's not 40%. Even, yes, even in post-sexual revolution America, it's something like 2 to 4%. In other words, it's minuscule. Take 25 people, line them up, one of them, according to polls anyway, would identify is gay or lesbian. Now that's probably going to change with the younger generation because the younger generation is now hearing that it is virtuous even to be attracted to the same sex. That's what we mean by homosexuality. Homo meaning same, sexuality meaning attraction in a, of, a, of a romantic kind. It is, it is now basically not only acceptable to be sexually attracted to the same sex, it's in some cases virtuous Good, better than heterosexuality. And all of this rests on an understanding of sexual orientation. That's a new term. Sexual orientation is the idea that you may have a certain pattern of romantic, emotional, sexual attraction to men, to women, or both sexes. And, and so you identify who you are based on who you're attracted to. Let me say that again so you get it. That's, that's important. You identify who you are based on who you're attracted to. Somebody says my sexual orientation is bisexual. It means you're attracted to both men and women. For example... Younger people especially are learning that their sexual orientation, who they're attracted to sexually, is basically the most important part of their being. That, that's where things are going. That's how things are being defined. That's the discovery that young people need to make. Who are they sexually attracted to? They're getting training in it. Uh, they're getting classes in it. They're getting indoctrination in it of all kinds. Certainly, watch TV, watch ABC, watch NBC. Watch Netflix. Watch Amazon Prime. What are many of the newest shows about? In some form, they're going to be about uh, both transgender and homosexual identity. Just about every show now, many movies, has a gay or lesbian character. And this is all part of the normalization and mainstreaming of homosexuality, of a homosexual sexual orientation. We are being indoctrinated today to believe that it's totally fine to be heterosexual, it's totally fine to be homosexual in an an orientation, excuse me, and it's totally fine to be bisexual in orientation. That is where we find ourselves. Now, what does the scripture say about this? In the Old Covenant, the scripture is very clear. You think of a text like Leviticus 18. Verses 21 to 23, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Why do I read multiple verses here? I read them so that you see that homosexuality is not an isolated behavior. It's part of a whole way of sexual expression that belongs to what we could call paganism. Let me just quickly sketch what I mean here. There are basically two major views of sexuality on offer in the world. There's a kind of Judeo-Christian sexual ethic, which which uh, stands for marriage and heterosexual marriage and the procreation of children as, as a key part of marriage. And there's something that is called paganism. Paganism is essentially a deification of the body. There's not really a God to worship. You, you just serve your body and it's lusts. You do whatever it is in you that you want to do. In human history, there have been many pagan cults, and in many pagan cults, they have practiced all sorts of aberrant sexual practices. Uh, You think, for example, in terms of what Leviticus is identifying, Leviticus is calling God's people not to be like, for example, the Canaanites. The Canaanites had fertility rites where there would be essentially orgies, and there would be all sorts of of godless practices that would take place. The Canaanites did, did not constrain their pagan worship only to sex, however. They also, as you heard me read here, would offer children to Molech. What does that mean? Does it mean you just kind of dedicate your child in a pagan temple? Is that, is that what he's talking about? No. Molech was a false god who would be represented in statues. Statues would be heated effectively like a kiln. And ancient Canaanites would take their children in worship of these false gods, fertility gods, and they would place their baby, there are multiple babies in the room, precious babies, they would place their baby on this statue and it would be burned to death as an act of worship. And you might think, oh, that is horrible. I'm sure that happened dozens of times and that's so wicked. No, there are indications from excavations, that at times hundreds and possibly even thousands of children would be brought forward in worship, children that these parents should love. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine walking in your neighborhood and seeing a group of people clustered around some sort of statue and you smell something burning and you walk over and they're burning their children alive? That was common in ancient Canaan. God was calling Israel not to be like Canaan. Canaan was very tempting to ancient Israel. There was a a wild pagan current that ran through the ancient Near East, and Israel was tempted by it. And Israel, the Old Testament indicates, sometimes was so tempted that its members, Israelites, followers of God, at least in name, would bring their children to be burned to death In the name of Molech. You hear that and it's horrifying. And then you realize, wait a minute, you get this like horror movie music in your mind and you recognize this sounds like America in 2016. Children are slaughtered by the millions. They're not brought to some weird statue and burned alive. They're just killed in the womb. They're killed with pills that nobody sees, swallowed. Nobody even knows a baby was there. They're killed with tools, surgical tools. A woman enters a clinic and, you know, two hours later she leaves and nobody knows the difference. In the same way, we have the mainstreaming of homosexuality. And we assume, based off of this text, we'll see the mainstreaming of of bestiality in days to come. Sex with animals. I mean, it all still sounds weird and out there, but it's really not. You see... The human heart is always tempted by paganism. <laughs> the human heart is always tempted to, to worship the body. People, are tempted, people were tempted in ancient Israel to gratify their sexual lusts in wild, wild ways, and they're tempted today. It's not new. It's ancient. <laughs> it's actually the opposite of, of new. <laughs> it's as ancient as the world is. So what are we to do? We are to be. A counterculture. We are to be a counterculture. And and the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, were called to be just that in Romans 1. Read Romans 1, 22 and following. Actually, I'll skip up a few verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What Romans 1 is saying in the new covenant era in the name of Jesus Christ is this. Just like in the old covenant era for ancient Israel, the nation state constituted in the name of Yahweh, the people of God made a nation from every tribe and tongue through the blood of Jesus Christ are called to stand apart from the nations. We are called to be marked out. We are called to be holy. We are called to be a city on a hill in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We are not called to be like the pagan peoples all around us. So we cannot embrace homosexuality in any way. We can't embrace it in terms of thinking that it's, it's okay to engage in homosexual behavior, and we can't, we can't approve even of homosexual lust what's called same-sex attraction. We can't approve of either. It's sinful to commit homosexual behavior, homosexual acts. It's sinful. It profoundly dishonors the Lord. And it's sinful, even before that, to commit homosexual lust in our minds. Just like it's sinful to commit, by the way, heterosexual lust in our minds of somebody who is not our spouse. So there's no sense in which the scripture approves of homosexuality. Some people out there today who take the name evangelical say it's okay to be homosexual homosexual if you are monogamous. That's how some people read Romans 1. They twist it. Matthew Vines is one author who has said this. He has said that Romans 1 is not condemning all homosexuality. It's condemning non-monogamous homosexuality. And that is not what the text says in the least. So we have to know this brothers and sisters. This places you and me squarely in front of a massive cultural wave that is gaining force and momentum as the days go on. We I hope you hear me clearly. We're just out of step with the culture. We're out of step with our schools, with where our society's going. Yes. Okay, I know the questions are later but Yes.
1: Right. So um, does that?
0: Some people will, will say it like that. So, how do we respond to to that? Um, That's a really good point. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think though that can seem to be really confusing. Um, Paul answers that directly in the passage I read here in Romans one. So you you see the same section, Romans one. 24 to 27, see, see this passage. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Here's what we could say. It's a possible interpretation that that means that there are non shame Full acts that men can commit with men, right? It's possible, but if you're reading the whole Bible together, right, you have to read all of Scripture together, not just isolated texts. You go to the Old Testament, you go to the Old Covenant era, and homosexual uh, behavior is clearly condemned. You go to the you go to the New Covenant era, and what does Jesus uphold? He upholds God's original design for marriage. Well, you read that with a text like this, and you see that it's clearly calling out homosexual behavior of any kind. So here's one thing to do, guys. If somebody raises uh, an objection over a a given verse, uh, as as Josh points us to, to recognize people are going to do, you need to know that certain texts can be twisted in the moment, but there is a whole story of biblical sexuality. That's why we had this the last section. That's why we're having this in this order, because I wanted to sketch out even quickly what God's design is for sex. There's no point at which God says in any part of Scripture, you know what? This is kind of free for all time. Do whatever you want. God has a plan for marriage and sexuality from the beginning. He creates sex for marriage, the the lifelong union of one man and one woman, and he upholds that design all the way through. So that's, that's... some of what we have to say there's more to say admittedly but that's some of what we have to say on that point okay I am actually going to leave off here because I think there probably are questions that we have that's a basic biblical approach to transgender identity and homosexual identity and uh, rather than keep on talking and talking I'll stop here
1: good Uh, praise God um, thank you so much. We're gonna we've got time for questions. Is mm-hmm. that cool? Okay, so I got I'll start us out with the first one as y'all are thinking about what your questions are gonna be. This question is um relating to homosexuality and um okay, how about I just as a Christian um live my life to the glory of God the best that I can and um, does it really affect my family at all if my neighbors or you know two women Uh, married, you know, now legally? Does that really affect me at all? And isn't it, shouldn't I just do my best to love them and keep my mouth shut about this issue? It's not going to influence my family and my children. Therefore, you know, can I just turn a blind eye to it?
0: That's really important. And what we need to make clear, I think, is that our fundamental duty in this day and age is not to go zap people with you know the, the rod of righteousness, whatever it may be. Our fundamental duty is to love sinners fallen just like us, tell them the truth about their sin, and tell them of the hope that is in Jesus Christ. It's important because we can kind of feel like we wish sinners weren't sinning like they are. It's natural to feel that, that in, in this day and age, like, I wish I wasn't in this stinking culture. I wish men could just be men and women could just be women, and this wouldn't be all messed up. And you know what we're really saying? (sighs) I wish sinners would just be normal sinners. Okay, (laughs) I get it. I'm not. I I don't want culture to be worse than it has to be, and you shouldn't either, right? We don't. We don't want culture to be like Nazi Germany, for example. Someone as bad as it could be, right? We'd rather it be respectable. Even if, it's not, even if everybody's not a Christian, we'd rather not have like a war zone, wouldn't we? Is it right? Is that fine? That's fine, I think. But here's the deal. We're Christians in a fallen world. We're actually supposed to have a mentality such that we see sinners not as problems, but as opportunities. We see fellow sinners, sinners sinning in awful ways not as a problem disrupting my solitude, but as part and parcel of a fallen world and as opportunities for grace. That's not an easy mentality to have. There are two gay couples in my neighborhood in Platte County, Missouri. I had never lived in Missouri before a year ago. I'm from Maine, which is more secular than Missouri, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky before this, which is more secular than where I live now. I knew that Missouri was the heartland, and I think a red state, right? It's a kind of a red state, yes. So I'm I'm red by nature in terms of politics, and I thought, you know, this will be this will be interesting. This will probably be a little bit refreshing for me, frankly, politically at least. You know, generally speaking, America's not the new Israel, but I, I, I kind of like this, I like living in a more red state. Then I move into a neighborhood, and out of 12, 14 families, two of them are gay. My wife and I were stunned, truly. This is Missouri. And we just had to recognize, this is the heartland. We, we recognized the world has changed. And so I can feel, just like you can feel. Now, now I got to deal with this. Now, now my kids have, now, now I'm not hating these, these people, I mean that. But just in a way like, now my kids have got to be exposed to this. Now I've got to explain to my five-year-old boy why there's no mommy in that family. And you can feel like you want to, you know, just get upset. But you have to recognize, as a Christian, you're not placed here for solitude. You're not, you're not in this world. So you can have your nice little life, and no sinner can ever, you know, kind of mess up your bubble. You're here to be a light. You're here as the city of God. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. I'm not castigating those who feel sadness and even distress over the fallenness of this world. You should feel that. It shows you that your conscience is operating. I, I, wish, that, I wish that there was less sin in my community, my neighborhood, my area. I do. But when I see expressions and manifestations of sin, I must fight against a mentality that hates those people and that sees them as problems ruining my life and I must instead see myself as an agent of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. I have to or else else I'm not going to be a Christian here. I'm just going to be an angry person who never shares the gospel because I don't I'm more like John. I'm sorry, I know I'm going on but this hits me where I am as you heard me share. This is my life right now. I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to be a reluctant witness to Nineveh. You know? I want to be like the apostles who not only were willing to witness to lost people, but went out to them. They, they took the gospel out. That's how I want to be. I, I need to repent of my sin, and I need to pray for that. Would
1: you say, theologically speaking, that would be correct as a witnessing tool, when somebody says, uh, or, or even just take take like this, if somebody says, "Well, I'm just simply not attracted to the opposite sex," um, would it be theologically correct to maybe possibly reference how uh, Paul talks about how some people are called to singleness and say, "Hey, look, that may be God showing you to a path that He wants you to follow in this way." Is that theologically would that be correct, incorrect? How would you how would you see? Because I've heard that given. From the pulpit, not Joshua specifically, but from the pulpit that oftentimes what we see is that this, God has given them a the gift of celibacy, but they respond with that in, the, in uh, associating with a homosexual lifestyle or transsexual or anything like that. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so I would say it's never okay to embrace any part of a homosexual lifestyle. Okay, so what I'm saying is, it's not okay to say I'm gay, but I'm going to be celibate. I get what a person is meaning if they're a genuine Christian. Some some folks out there I think are confused, and they say that. But what I want to say is, Scripture never speaks approvingly of homosexuality. It only condemns it. It only. Uh, this is a very good question. I can say uh, there is definitely a category I think for celibacy of depending on whatever you're naturally attracted to, right? Sinfully or otherwise. There's going to be a category for celibacy. There has to be. If you're not married, you need to be celibate. And that means you need to not be acting out, either in your thought life or practically, any expression of sexuality, right? So we're not calling people who are same-sex attracted, who are a Christian, to any kind of tougher life than we are calling a heterosexually attracted single Christian person they both are called to celibacy. Here's another thing to say, though. We're also not saying that if you just pray enough, if you just ask God to, you know, get you married, if you, that there's some way you can necessarily pray the gay away, to use the older language. So we should be very careful about, about thinking that we can just, you know, sort of get people zapped and get every person married out there. If somebody if somebody is same-sex attracted, what I think we should be praying for them and helping them to own is an identity that rejects any homosexual attraction. But then we need to know that God may not give them either a draw to the opposite sex or the opportunity to be married. Jesus has a category for this, by the way. I'd have to get you a reference tomorrow, but Jesus talks about eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And that's a category that I... It's not exactly what we're talking about. It's very close. It's people who basically give up any sexual desire or don't feel sexual desire and serve God for his glory. And they are eunuchs for the kingdom. And so, um, you know, we need to recognize that that's a, that's a valid category. So there's a lot of carefully drawn lines there. I hope that made sense. Yeah. That's what I saying. Yeah. My Ryan. My
1: question is on your, uh, your first talk. Question or point number ten: You said men and women prayed or uh, play different roles in the church. Yes. Uh, recently, John Piper just posted a video on. Um, he was asked a question. He that asked people. Ask Pastor then, John. Yeah, ask Pastor John. And one, the question was: Is uh, a man wrote in and said, "Is it wrong for me to listen to Beth Moore?" But I noticed in the scripture that you put in, in Second Timothy that says women should not teach or have authority over men. Pastor John said that um, it is not wrong for him to listen to Beth Moore, but it, is, it would be wrong for him to take pastoral advice from Beth Moore. And that kind of sounds different to me than the complimentary.
0: Yeah. John Piper's had an interesting engagement with Beth Moore over the years. I'm very, very thankful for John Piper and see him as a great guide on so many things. But I also know that John Piper is not perfect. He's not Jesus, not by a long shot. And so on this issue, I would, I would say that if, if it's wrong to do in a local church service, it's certainly not something that I would recommend to, to men. Um, I think Beth Moore is on very solid ground, very solid ground in teaching women uh, I think she's against what Scripture says when she's teaching adult men. And so I have no counsel for adult men to listen to her material. Um, that's, that's not what I would recommend based solely off of what Scripture says. So I have to dif- disagree with, with Piper there.
2: Uh, my question is, how deeply do you think sin affects humanity? Does it go to the level of dna and so i grew up believing that you could not be born gay right do you think because of the effect of sin maybe at the genetic level that somebody could be born gay and how do we deal with that
0: in light of scripture that is a another good question and a very tough one scientists have searched in vain for the gay gene we've been told that it's there and they can't find it. Uh, nobody's found it yet. It, it could be found at some point in the future. Here's, here's what I would say most directly then. If somebody does find it, it doesn't, I don't think it does anything to our theology, our, our understanding of homosexuality, because we recognize that we are born sinful in Adam. We're not born potentially sinful in Adam. We are sinful. We died in Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ, all live, right? So we died in him. Our, our, our eternal damnation, our state of eternal damnation horribly was spelled out for us that very day. So what we have to recognize is it's not actually the most crucial matter to determine where the sinful instinct begins. The key for us is to know that the sinful instinct is sinful and needs to be dealt with by the gospel of grace, Am I not, is there a gene in me that inclines me to be selfish with my time and not sacrifice my free time for my children? If scientists find that in the human brain, what will that mean for me? Basically, it won't mean anything different than what I now know. I know when I, when I am sinful with my time, selfish, I need to Repent. And I need to pray to God for strength to overcome sin. And I think it's the same for homosexuality. Alcoholism, there's proven factors, genetic, can be
1: genetic right. You're born
0: this way. Right. You still have to fight it. You still have to repent of it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And that we have we, we make friends, they are living that lifestyle, they know where we stand, they know where mm-hmm. we feel, but at what point is it
0: condoning their lifestyle mm-hmm. versus life? It's been great being with you guys tonight. Uh I well no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one hard question after another. Good question, Amy. Uh, what I would say. Is this? Um, we are not fundamentally called by God to zap sinners out of their sin, right? To 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 make them um, sin less. <laughs> that's not our fundamental call, right? We'd like for them to sin less, actually, and we're and that's not wrong to want. I think that's actually right. But I can't somehow. I, it's not my job to to these these couples who I, I keep picturing them walking down the hill by my house. It's not my job to somehow try to convince them to sin 30% less. What I can do is try to befriend them, try to share the gospel with them, try to be a good neighbor to them, try to love them. Um, In terms of condoning, there are tough issues there. You're dead right. Um, Things like a wedding, like a gay wedding, um, that would be an example where I would say I couldn't participate. It's not directly answered by Scripture, so let that be said, but my best handling of this is that if this is a union that is not blessed by Scripture, I cannot support it. Um, I, can't, I can't get behind this like I can you know, a, a wedding that is at least somewhat according to God's design. Um, so there's gonna be tough issues that we face along these lines. It would take me a whole session, I think, to flesh out what's love and what's condoning. But fundamentally, we need to love sinners and we need to hold the line, the biblical line, We need to recognize further that the most loving thing we can do is is in a a gracious way share the gospel with them. It's more loving to share the gospel with them than it is to do anything else. Um, And so a lot of times we get bogged down in pre-evangelism. I'm trying to do pre-evangelism. I'm trying to gain a hearing. Share the gospel. Build a friendship. Be friendly. Invite them over. Have your kids play together even, I think. But... um, but share the gospel wherever you can. Now, even there, as I say that, I'm sorry, even there, as I say that, I'm not sure I would have my children go to their house. I'm just telling you honestly, I don't do that though with heterosexual couples and their kids. I'm very careful about where my kids go and play. So it's not, it's not just a matter of this. It's a matter of, you know, trying to keep my kids in a, in an environment I, I can respect. So I have
2: uh, two things. Um, The first, I recently read a report that said that up to 40% of people who um, identify as the opposite gender of what they were born have attempted to commit suicide. Um, And the next highest category is schizophrenics at 26%. Hmm. We're not talking contemplating. We're talking actually attempted. Hmm. And so to, I guess, to condone or say that that's okay is basically like signing a death warrant, and um, and this hit home because uh, my wife and I we have a friend from high school whose daughter um, went, was in a um, mental recovery facility, whatever you call it, um, last Christmas time, and um, when she came out of that, she identified as a male and you know at first i was like well why didn't they you know get her you know talk some sense into her or whatever but i was thinking i was like you know if that was one of my kids and my kid was talking about committing suicide i mean how do you how do you how do you balance between being consistent you know with the scriptures yeah and not wanting to push your kid to the brink
0: that is such a tough matter. And it's a very sobering one. You know, sometimes we can, we can talk a good game and then you'll hear occasionally about a child from a Christian home who commits suicide or something like this, and it really brings it home to you. So these are not, these are not hypothetical realities as you're bringing out. I think what we need to do is be like the father in the parable of the prodigal son and be marked by great love, be marked by a generous, loving spirit, for example, to all our children. But I think we also are very much called as parents to train them in what is right. And so we're going to have to recognize that our children may rebel against us or, you know, friends' kids may rebel against them. That may happen. Um, we do everything we can to establish a home that is marked by love. We, I think, try to create a home where we don't tolerate, this goes back to the prior good question, we don't tolerate sin, but we, it's hard. <laughs> we also recognize that our kids are sinners, and we're sinners. Our kids live with us too, right? And we're sinful. Sometimes we're too strong. Sometimes we rebuke them too strongly. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we're unkind. Sometimes we're selfish with our time, right? This is you and me. It isn't just our kids who are sinners. We're sinners. So we're all living together, and we all need to pursue loving one another through sin. But there is also a point where, you know, many of us are going to say we cannot condone sin. I I think in the case of, you know, a child who embraces transgender identity, I'm going to do everything I can to make clear to that child that they need to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, but I am their father. And I will always be their father. I'm not going to turn my back on them. I'm not going to stop loving them. Um, they're welcome in my home. Those are the things I would, I would try to establish. There are going to be some gray area matters, I'm sure, that are going to be tough to sort out. But those are some baseline principles that I'm trying to, to establish with my kids. How can, I, uh, engage with How can you engage them? With- Yeah, I think, how, how I, I think oh. approach, approach that. there are different perspectives taken on this, and that needs to be said. Some Christian parents who love God and love his word and love Jesus believe that, you know, if, if for example, let's not make it so much about transgender for just a minute. If their daughter runs off with a guy, you know, or son does it, they're going to cut him off, you know, as a witness, so to speak. Uh, some... Will still keep lines of communication open. Some will have that couple, let's say they decide to come back for Thanksgiving in their home. I don't want to say that there's immediately from Scripture one approach that I can see, or, or certain approaches that I can see as dead wrong and others that I can see as perfectly right. I see hard choices here. I think what I would say is if my, duh, oh, I can't even say that, but, you know, if I had children who embraced a transgender identity, I'd I do not believe I would cut off contact with them. I don't believe that's condoning their sin. I would try to make very clear that I do not condone their sin, but I would also try to retain a relationship with them. I would. And you know what? In a lot of these cases, by the way, the child doesn't want to. The child doesn't want it. And they can't bear to be in the presence of their parents because they're still a witness of the conscience. And there's probably, in terms of a Christian background, there's training. They know the truth. They know they're running from God. Usually, children who are going to embrace a transgender or homosexual lifestyle are not not choosing that for lack of information, right? They're choosing it because of a desire to sin. Me opposing that sin does not change them choosing that sin. So I'm going to do what I can to love them. I'm not going to condone what they do. If they get married, as I said here a minute ago, I'm I'm not going to the wedding. I can't do that. I can't condone that. I can't be, I can't, I can't, in a wedding, you're effectively witnessing to the goodness of the, I can't do that. But I, I can be their father.
1: Okay. Chris has got a doozy. Yeah, I, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time.
0: Because uh, I'm going it's to, a, it's a transgender question. It just kind of makes it a little blurry. Because okay. the, the issue with uh, how we raise our kids and so on, um, there are conditions that do exist where, With congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where the labia is closed and the clitoris is actually large, and it looks like a penis. Right. They are XX, they are females. And, you know, and there's also Klinefelters uh, where they are XXY and they have small genitalia, small testicles, small penis, but they have breasts. Mm-hmm. And these do exist, and it's like, if we base it just, it's like, how do you go by? It? Do you go by the chromosomes? Do you go by the, the yeah. genital parts, parts? Like, and then that can. Right, we saying that they're, they're simple because one way, or they're doing this other way, but really it's kind of confusing either way. Right, them. right. Good, very good question. Often comes up on these discussions. It's called intersex as a condition, uh, meaning that um, a child will, in a very small number of cases, have dual genitalia or some of the conditions you mentioned, and so that does happen. We need to make very clear that it does happen. <laughs> when you heard me talking about behaviors, you were hearing me trying to directly work off of what the biblical texts were saying, which is not so much, you know, a two-year-old who doesn't even understand this condition, but is an, an adult person or, a, you know, a more cognizant uh, person who is choosing these behaviors. And so we need to make very clear that Scripture calls such people who are conscious of their choices not to make those choices in, in, in embracing the opposite-sex identity. But it's, it is a tricky matter when uh, when it's a child, when it's a baby. And what... What theologians working with doctors have said is that the parents need to work with doctors to figure out the best approach for a child in that kind of circumstance, and there are going to be some gray areas. We would say, though, that um, that kind of situation is an outworking of uh, a sinful world, so it's it's not that the child is sinning and choosing that. It's that this is, this is a condition that that doesn't tie up our theology into knots. It shows us that all the world is fallen. And this is an expression, this is part of what, what it means to be in a fallen world. Uh, it means that even our body is cursed. Our body suffers the effects of the curse. And children who don't even know what's happening to them uh, suffer the effects of the curse. So parents in, who have an intersex child who are in this kind of situation are gonna have to choose with their child uh, with their physician's guidance, which way they direct the child. And uh, thankfully, there are a good number of instances where this has worked itself out in a salutary way. It's not easy. We're not simplifying this to mean that this is easy and you can just you know, do steps one, two, and three and everything goes away. This is going to be tough. But it's going to be tough, by the way, for any child... You heard me give testimony to this, give voice to this. For any child who is drawn towards behavior, clothing of the opposite sex. The kind of traditional Christian perspective, I think, on these sorts of matters is you just pray enough and it goes away. It may not go away. Uh, Some of you may have children who are pulled toward the opposite sex in terms of their own presentation. And what, you, what you're going to have to do with them is no different than what you're going to have to do with a child with, with intersex parts. You're going to have to help them. You're going to have to, to guide them back to who God made them to be. In the case of intersex, you're actually going to have to help kind of choose which they're going to be, which is tough. But my point is, we're in tough spots no matter the age. So that's some of what I would say. It's a great question.
1: Um, I'm going to ask him the last question because we're going to let him go to the hotel and go to sleep. Is that cool? It's
0: probably good. All right, so, um, Seeing as my brain is now fried you, by these questions. yeah,
1: You, pr- you probably noticed um, what's on people's hearts and minds here in that all the questions, with the exception of one, had to do with trans- transgender... Um, issues or homosexuality. I'm going to go back to your first talk about complementarity um, theology and doctrine. And maybe you're going to hit on this tomorrow when you talk about biblical womanhood. But oftentimes when we think about a a complementary position in that men and women all have the same value and worth, but obviously we're different, which this church absolutely affirms, oftentimes that discussion is framed in the context of husband, wife, kids. wives, missed a husband, husband... Willingly, sacrificially, leads his family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This church, as does so many other evangelical church churches, has a ton of single people loving Jesus, doing the best that they can, waiting for, anticipating a spouse, praying for a spouse, or um, I, whatever. You know, how does yes. that issue Oof. transpose itself yeah. into the lives of single people?
0: I actually do have several sections. Aimed right there that's, that's why tomorrow. Cool. That's cool. Okay, you want me to give a quick, sure. quick yeah, preview, like yeah. a preview, okay. and if fewer of you come back tomorrow, I'll know I lost you here. So <laughs> it's very tragic. Um, I, you heard me speak to it a, a little bit when I said uh, we are a, we are glorify God, not not when we get married. <laughs> And then biblical manhood and womanhood activate, you know, sort of like the robot powering up with light in its eyes. We are a biblical man or woman from birth. God has made us to own who we are. Sometimes that's hard as we were just talking about. Sometimes there are real challenges, physiologically, psychologically, that we face along those lines. But we glorify God as a man or a woman. So please hear me. And I don't think the church has always communicated well about this. You glorify God as a single man. You glorify God as a single woman. You don't glorify God only as a husband or a wife. My goodness, that's not the case at all. Jesus Christ was single. The Lord of the church, the Messiah, the one who's going to return in the clouds and command justly our worship is a single man. Jesus never snuggled up with his spouse. Jesus never tousled his son's hair. He never played catch with his boy. He never went hunting with his boy. He never played dolls with his little girls. Jesus never did any of it. He didn't have any inside jokes. He didn't have candlelight dinners. He had none of it. He was single all his days, and he was the happiest man who ever lived. What does that in itself tell us about singleness? It tells us that you can be the Lord of heaven and earth and not be married, and you are fully fulfilled uh, right then and there. So from that framework, the church has tremendous justification for helping singles to see that their worth does not derive from marital status. Their worth derives from being created in the image of God. And I think we need to, I started there because I think we need to put more in that basket than we typically have. I'll say more tomorrow, but